0: Previously, on Prologued.
1: The United States essentially um, becomes one of the major contributors to Afghanistan's economic and political development. And opium played a pretty big role in that. The major reason why the Cold War shapes Afghan drug politics is that Afghanistan is neutral.
0: But development and drug control efforts during the era of the Cold War weren't always so peaceful. In the fight against communism, American policymakers and their allies viewed social uprisings as threats to be extinguished. Not only did revolutionary politics threaten the status quo, but it was also suspected that revolutionary groups funded their movements through a shady source—drug trafficking. Today, we start to unravel the tangled logic of the Cold War on drugs, where in the minds of many, insurgent and trafficker were one in the same. I'm Brianna Mendoza and this is prologue
2: think the, the drug war has endured for as long as it as it has um, because it, it performs a lot of functions <laughs> that are you know, not always distinctly related to, which you would say is, is drug control.
0: This is Daniel Weimer, a scholar of US foreign policy with a special focus on the role that drugs have played in its history.
2: Especially focused on how the US tries to work with foreign nations to enact drug control within whatever state such as as Mexico. When looking at drug control and the relationship between drug control and counterinsurgency and and, and modernization or or development, that counterinsurgency and modernization are, you know, two sides of the, the same coin. They they work hand in hand.
0: During the last episode, we briefly discussed the idea of modernization as a key strategy that the U.S. deployed during the Cold War. Essentially, by funding infrastructure and education projects in the Third World, the logic went, the United States could accelerate countries' development towards a capitalist democracy. Doing so would prevent them from falling into the communist camp. An essential aspect of this approach that we didn't discuss, though, is counterinsurgency.
2: So, um, counterinsurgency is the the means by which you deal with insurgents.
0: Insurgents, guerrillas, freedom fighters. There are many different names for groups of people who work to implement economic, political, and or social change against the wishes of an established state. For the purposes of our discussion, I myself am going to use the term revolutionary as a general descriptor. A major red flag that indicated to the United States that a country might be vulnerable to Soviet influence was the presence of a revolutionary movement, especially in areas with entrenched poverty. However, it is exceedingly difficult to start a development project in a war zone. That's where counterinsurgency came in. Take, for example, a United Nations-endorsed crop substitution program in Thailand during the 1970s. A report from a U.S. congressman described the Hmong as in desperate need of aid to help them grow according to U.S. standards of life, including a drug-free economy. The Hmong were a hill tribe that were not only involved in a rebellion against the royal Thai government, but they also grew opium.
2: Their dependence upon Mm -hmm. the, the poppy economy is keeping them in kind of this stalemated state of development. So if we can get them to Mm -hmm. engage in, you know, other economic activities, it will modernize them. It will bring them into the uh, mainstream fold of of Thai life. Um, Mm -hmm. So at the same time that you're trying to deal with um, putting down insurgents, government exerting control in that territory, you're also, uh, the U.S. is looking at its endeavor in Thailand, which it did with, with the United Nations, uh, in league with the United Nations and other countries.
0: The RTG was just as invested in the project as their American counterparts. By allying with the United States on a development program, the Thai government would protect and extend their power, as well as establish a positive international reputation by cooperating with anti-communist and anti-drug initiatives. Thus, Funding for the crop substitution program included resources for police forces that would pursue interdiction and inhibit rebellion.
2: I think the relationship between militarization and and drug control is a natural flow in some respects out of the fact that we're a source, you know, we're seen as source control um, or source nations that, you know, um, enacting source control is, is seen as part of a, a military operation. So that's that's one, uh, I think, pretty strong strain when it comes to to militarization. But at the same time, policing, you know, in the United States over the course of the eighties, nineties, up to today, becomes more militarized. Um, and so I think there's this kind of uh, mm back and forth flow between what's happening abroad and, you know, what's happening inside the the United States.
0: Ultimately, the program had little effect on drug trafficking in Southeast Asia. Due to the decentralized nature of trafficking networks, corruption in the RTG, and an unabated demand for heroin, opium production simply moved to surrounding areas. Bangkok did, however, create a very effective counterinsurgency force to ensure its hold on power remains secure. And since the RTG was an anti communist ally, the program wasn't a complete loss for the United States in light of the ongoing Cold War. This complex dynamic between the Cold War and the drug war wasn't unique to Thailand. It emerged in other places too.
2: Mexico also was, I wouldn't say, uh, Dealing with full-scale counterinsurgency, but it had, you know, um, insurgent groups, particularly in the in the South, uh, and there was um, you know, a lot of. And I'm sure you talked to Alexander about this. Um, you know, the real fear that uh, if these uh, dissident groups, these these rebels, um, start to tap into the opium production as a source of Funding. Well, then that makes things much, much Mm -hmm. worse. And so drug control gets Mm -hmm. really tied in with internal security efforts, citing the United States providing uh, equipment, resources, Uh, we will A, help uh, reduce drug uh, production in Mexico, which then uh, benefits Mm -hmm. the United States because then there's ostensibly less heroin coming into the United States. And at the same time, you know we're fostering uh, internal security in the in the hemisphere. And I think that interplay uh, between counterinsurgency and drug control, you know that happens in many places uh, in the Western hemisphere.
3: Currently, the war on drugs is not a war on drugs per se. It's a war on poor people. It's a war against marginalized poor populations who who may or may not be engaging in a quote-unquote illegal economy to make ends meet and to survive. This
0: is Alexander Avina, an associate professor of Latin American and Mexican history at Arizona State University.
3: Um, in 2014, I published a book called uh, Specters of Revolution, uh, Peasant Guerrillas in, in the Cold War Mexican Countryside with Oxford University Press. I am a historian of the left in latin america and speci- specifically in mexico um so in, if if you understand the war on drugs in that way then the war on drugs is actually about political and social control not about the eradication of the production and distribution of commodity or well, things that are turned into commodities and then and then deemed illegal by state powers and 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 super and super power as well right so There's a consistency in Mexican history from at least the 19th into the 20th and 21st centuries that the war on drugs are used as a way to expand state power into regions where different manifestations of the Mexican state have have had issues and difficulties in consolidating their power. Um, So whether it's um, uh, You know poor urban rapidly growing uh, impoverished urban communities or neighborhoods in Mexico City at the turn of the 20th century um, or uh, unruly highland peoples in, in, in northern Mexico and in Sinaloa and Sonora or Guerrero in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there's, uh, the threat is always that. The threat is always there's an effort for the Mexican state to expand power and social control into regions that have long resisted that type of power and have tried to negotiate in a Mexican state along their own terms, local terms, uh, their own autonomous terms.
0: One of the fault lines that runs throughout the country and makes establishing state power difficult was and arguably still is race.
3: I mean, I would I would make the argument that race is always at the heart of, of any war on drugs regime or, or effort, whether it's the US or Mexico, right? So that also forms part of this effort to use a war on drugs and to use coercive measures to fashion the type of citizenry that is racialized in a way that um I, I'm trying to think of a way to in a way that's more universal in the like raza cósmica type way, right?
0: In the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution in nineteen seventeen, the new revolutionary government had to figure out how to unite its country across significant geographic and cultural differences. Their solution? Appeal to a supposedly common racial and ethnic background.
3: You have the idea of a post revolutionary Mexican citizen that is that is mestizo, that is based on mestizaje, that is based on the blending of all of these different groups.
0: Specifically, a blend between European and indigenous backgrounds.
3: Um, which is a form of erasure, right? Like it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a different manifestation of settler colonialism than what we see. In other words, because you're asking for people to set aside their particular identities, histories, and communities to become part of this, this, this weird blend that um, only works if you erase people's histories and identities.
0: Instead of creating a post-racial society, though, race and ethnicity were simply reconfigured in Mexico, according to the new Mestizo ideal. Many of the political, economic and cultural challenges that the post-revolutionary government faced were filtered through this lens, including questions surrounding drug use and control.
3: So the war on drugs becomes a way, it is not. To, I mean, it's not it's not that widespread in the 20s and 30s, right? The, 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 it's not going to be the type of huge uh, militarized can, uh, drug interdiction campaigns that we see after World War II, but there are efforts to target um, communities that are racialized, whether they're Chinese communities in Northern Mexico, or whether they're indigenous communities in Southern Mexico, the fact that they're somehow imagined to be linked to drug consumption or cultivation is enough to get them to be targeted by by different um, state coercive state apparatuses within this emerging post-revolutionary state. Um, so the idea in northern Mexico that that opium, that the opium business is um, uh, being promulgated by by Asian, by Chinese immigrants, right? That somehow and they're causing the the corruption of, of good Mexican citizens targets, you know, opens them up to be targeted um, by by a post-revolutionary state and its coercive apparatuses.
0: World War II and the international order that emerged afterwards, as we've previously discussed, significantly affected the trajectory of the global war on drugs.
3: But Mexican officials are also really clever in how to use uh, what they see as a U.S. obsession with drug control in ways that benefit them. So after 1947, they announced the the permanent campaign against drugs. You know, from the American perspective and someone like Anzinger, who becomes a great admirer of this approach and and will be very supportive of Mexico for the rest of his career. um, What Americans like him see is good, strong, vigorous Mexican efforts to eradicate drug production from the Mexican post-revolutionary state perspective. It allows them, again, to project state power into troublesome highland rural regions that had remained outside of their jurisdiction, political jurisdiction to a certain extent. Um, after the revolution.
0: Much like the RTG in Thailand, Mexican officials recognized that they could use drug control as a way to remain in the good graces of the Americans and accomplish their own domestic political goals.
3: So, in a place like Guerrero or a place like Sinaloa, you have outright class warfare between peasant communities adamant about um, actually applying Mexican, agra- the, the 1917 Mexican Constitution laws about agrarian reform against uh, local elite landholders and power holders who um, are refusing to follow the Mexican Constitution and will fight tooth and nail to prevent any sort of large-scale agrarian reform that was put into place.
0: A bit of context here. A major goal of the Mexican Revolution that was then promised in the new Constitution was land redistribution.
3: What someone like Ben Smith argues, you know, what he finds in Sinaloa after 1940 is that drug production becomes a way to kind of mediate that type of class warfare. So landed elites will say, look, you're not going to get, you're not going to get my land. You're not going to get our land. But what if we engage in this type of drug production that will be lucrative and that will, you know, allow you small peasantry, small peasants to gain, to make a little bit more money. And what he argues is that for Sinaloa, from the 1940s to the 1970s, you have this quote-unquote narco-populism in which you have a, a sort of class, a negotiated class alliance.
0: This alliance involved a lot of violence and murder by landed elites against recalcitrant peasants. But for a while, it did work, for a time anyways.
3: By the 1970s, um, in the midst of broad popular turbulence and social mobilizations, that kind of alliance broke down. And and actually, if you look at Sinaloa in the 1970s, it becomes a really violent, particularly in a place like Uliacan, Becomes really violent when you have different groups of, of of traffickers going at it, trying to control um, trying to control the the uh, the, mar- the marijuana and in- increasingly in the 70s the the opium and the heroin business. So it's it, when I so when I refer to it as autonomy, there's both like you know pe- peasant communities, peasant organization autonomy and 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 their fight against local caciques, local power holders, um, but there's also an autonomy enjoyed by some of those local power holders who who may or may not do what Mexico City is telling them to do. So these, so something like the, the the first permanent campaign against drugs becomes an effort to project state power uh, through the use of the military and through the use of the federal police into these regions that um, on the one hand are characterized by um, outright political violence between uh, peasants and land elite. Um, but on the other hand, there's also, they're fighting against a certain autonomy that tries to prevent the, 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 the grand plans and, 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 and designs coming from Mexico City to be implemented.
0: The situation that Dr. Avina just described is another great example of what a global perspective of the drug war reveals that might otherwise be obscured. Yes, to some extent, the violence was motivated by the power and money that drug trafficking brings. But also, engaging in the drug trade and the alliances formed between cultivators, traffickers, and landowners enabled resistance against attempts at state control emanating from Mexico City.
3: They're responding to demand. They're just—they're despond- responding to global shifts and the supply and demand of, of illicit drugs, right? But they're also responding to very local conditions, and some of those local conditions involve the failure of of state-mandated agrarian reform, the failure of the Mexican government in supporting and fomenting a um, higo based uh, peasant agriculture, right? Um, they've devoted most of their state resources to this capitalist agricultural system mostly located in Northern Mexico that was producing crops for the global market, particularly for the United States. Um, so this is one of the reasons that, that I view the war on drugs in Mexico in the, in the 60s and 70s as, as, a, as a form of counterinsurgency, really working off of as we talked about Daniel Weimer's book and uh, work, um, it's a counterinsurgency in the sense that like they're 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 only going after the symptomatic manifestations of deeper uh, structural factors that explain why fundamentally why poor people decided to grow illicit drugs, and and that those deep underlying factors are never addressed, and they use overwhelming levels of violence. to to wipe out symptomatic reflections of that discontent. And a place like Guerrero and even Sinaloa, by the 60s and 70s, you have both urban and rural guerrilla movements who are fighting to overthrow what they see as the oligarchic corrupt Mexican state and to bring about a a more just socialist Mexico. Um, And counterinsurgency becomes a way of of just simply eradicating the, the guerrillas, eradicating political protests and dissidents while leaving the structural underlying roots in place, right? So it just more or less ensures that there will be a future cycle of protest and rebellion against those conditions that created popular protests and, and armed guerrilla movements to begin with.
0: The 60s and 70s marked the beginning of what people call the Dirty War in Mexico. Here's Dr. Eileen Teague, who we've heard from in previous episodes.
1: There was a period, and I mean... I think historians are still trying to really understand the period um, called um, that people call the Dirty War, and um, this is a period. And I mean, there's been similar periods throughout uh, similar periods of history throughout Latin America, um, but it's one in which um, the Mexican government and its ruling party, the the
0: PRI, the The PRI, that's the Institutional Revolutionary Party,
1: in some areas of the country, putting down um, threats to its rule um, from the Mexican left. Um, That is sort of, um, you've seen dirty wars um, in other parts of Latin America, like Argentina um, and other countries of um, right-leaning governments putting down any sort of left-leaning dissent. And a lot of times this left-leaning dissent um, on the part of counterparts in these countries, um, you know, in this sort of Cold War framework, um, uh, the... Local actors, right-leaning actors, tie this dissent to the global Cold War and you know Soviet conspiracy. But in many cases, you know, the left in many of these Latin American countries are just um, segments of society advocating for more transparency and policies and democratic reforms. There's a lot of violence against them, and this is and Mexico is sort of dealing with the same um, type of situation during the 1960s and 1970s.
0: Following the Mexican Revolution. The PRI was a state party responsible for carrying forward the mantle and spirit of the revolution, but after a couple of decades, challenges to its monopoly on political power emerged.
1: That it was supposed to be this party of the left, party of that reform, um, but by mid-century, it was um, you know leaning uh, very much into authoritarianism, and the people that are considered left are starting to take issue with. You know the authoritarian bent of, of the PRI, um, and the PRI doesn't do anything to sort of push push this down. In fact, it it silences dissent, which makes it more authoritarian, in um, ways. And so um, that is where the the Mexican left emerges. And in general, it was sort of it, it was taking issue with the um, with the way in which the PRI was running the country um, in, a, in a way that it that that did not fulfill the promises of the Mexican Revolution, which took place from 1910 to 1920.
0: Resistance to pre-leadership, the influence of the Cold War, and ongoing drug trafficking all came to a head in 1960s Guerrero, a Western state famous for its coastline.
3: But what you have by the 60s in Guerrero is on the one hand, a lot of popular discontent with a sort of socioeconomic inequality that was intensified by the Mexican state's economic policies after World War II. Um, in the, in the rural sector that, that again, uh, lavishly supported the, this, this large scale capitalist agri- agribusiness sector to the detriment of, of the small scale peasant and the hegel based um, rural sector. That was still expected to produce enough food to feed the nation, right? So it was, they were under incredible pressure. Um, and then politically you also had a series of multi-class movements that emerged to protest what they identified as increasing uh, PRI, the ruling party of Mexico, um, what they deemed as its political authoritarianism at the, as manifested at the local and state level. So what you have in Guerrero in the 60s then is this this cycle of popular protest that tried to work within the confines of the 1910 Mex- 1917 Mexican constitution. They tried to petition the government for the redress of grievances. They tried to organize opposition political parties. They try to organize independent unions that were link, not linked to the PRI and, and its, and its uh, structures of, 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 of patronage.
0: When advocating through the established channels of communication with the government didn't work, they turned to more confrontational approaches.
3: And uh, and they used direct action, right? They used marches. They took over. They occupied spaces in, 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 in the capital city of Guerrero, Chilpancingo, and Acapulco. And at each with each. Um, with each type of uh, popular movement and protest, the different manifestations of the Mexican state responded increasingly with violence. Um, and so by the 1960s, you have, by the mid 1960s, you have um, the sending in of the Mexican military um, under the auspices of waging a war on drugs because Guerrero had long been a producer of marijuana and, and opium puppies. They used that as an excuse to send in the, Me- the Mexican military to, uh, to to tamp down and to eradicate um, this like civic minded type of popular protest that had emerged in the late 50s and early 60s. So by 1963, 64, 65, you get terrible reports of what the Mexican military is doing to to dissidents, individual dissidents, um, torture, rape, the the wholesale destruction of entire peasant communities, the expropriation of their lands. Um, And this further radicalized then some of the veterans of the earlier uh, civic, um, constitution-based protest movement, to the point that by the late 60s, you had two separate uh, peasant guerrilla movements in the state of Guerrero, led by by communist schoolteachers, Henardo um, Lasquez and, and Lucio Lasquez.
0: But what did drugs have to do with this political conflict?
3: Uh, when I was doing research for that book, I'm trying to trace the you know narrate the history of these of these these guerrilla movements. But as I was reading the the military documents and the and the police documents they talked a lot about drugs right? and I kind of like tried to leave that to the side. I'm like, this is going to be my future project. But it became really clear that on the one hand, there was in Guerrero, there was an intensification and industrialization of drug cultivation in the late 60s and early 70s, first marijuana and then opium poppy. So there is that. Um, and the fact that that existed gave the Mexican government excuse to send in more federal police officers, gave them more to send in more military. Um, but um, you know, the primary mission of these people of these 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 uh military people and, and police people who are being sent in, their primary objective was to get rid of the, the guerrilleros that were up in the mountains. The Mexican government never a- acknowledged that they existed. They were referred to them as not guerrilla fighters or revolutionaries, because in a sense they would be de- delegitimize themselves. They referred to them as, as common thieves, they referred to them as, as um cattle wrestlers, as bandits, they referred to them as drug traffickers. Um and the war on drugs in Guerrero served as a cover for this counterinsurgency that gets waged um, against uh, both these two guerrilla movements and the, dozen, the dozens of peasant communities, primarily on the coast, and uh, the highlands, that supported them.
0: We should note here, too, that by this time, the United States was providing significant funding to Mexico for the purpose of expanding its drug control efforts.
1: Some of this policing aid at times is used to, uh, in, in in the efforts to put down, um, or, the, or the efforts to repress the Mexican left. And sometimes there's been cases that sometimes when there's a real confusion or a conflation between people who are you know, of the left and people who um, produce or traffic drugs. Um, and so there's a conflation between the two, so that from inside of Mexico, um, it would seem that, Mexican policing actors are, you know, going after, um, you know, they're putting down um, threats to pre-rule, whereas as seen from the outside, um, it could be conveyed to U.S. partners as if they are, that, that
0: Mexican policing actors are going after
1: potential, um, Drug suppliers or drug traffickers.
0: The war on drugs in Guerrero served as a cover for the counterinsurgency war that the PRI waged against revolutionary groups in that state. A cover that the PRI desperately required to protect its reputation as the inheritors of the Mexican Revolution.
3: But it's a really like complex, messy matrix, right? And it's so I don't want to say that there was no drug interdiction effort in Guerrero. There was, but it wasn't the primary motive. The primary motive was to eradicate this. Particularly the Party of the Poor movement that was growing and that demonstrated the potential to expand beyond the state of Guerrero. And there's a famous quote that I that that I drew that I draw from um, from a Mexican historian. He he managed to interview uh, an officer who was involved in these efforts, and, and and the officer said something to the extent of, "Look, with the marijuana growers we had no beef, but with the guerrillas we had to fuck them up." So to me, like that says a lot to me, right? Um, in terms of what What this war on drugs was functioning as politically and discursively for the Mexican government in the 70s, as they try to present it both for a domestic audience um, and and for an international audience. Um, This obviously provided cover for horrific um, state terror and and violence. The military disappeared, we think, between 700 to 1000 people in Guerrero. you know, hundreds and uh, thousands of, of, of tortures, rapes.
0: The actions undertaken by Mexican authorities in Guellero in the 60s served as a template for similarly motivated action elsewhere in the nation throughout the 70s.
3: And they tried to tamp down in 1975, 76, and 77 with the um, explosion of opium poppy production in northern Mexico in a place like Sinaloa, Sonora, Durango, and Chihuahua, which is usually referred to as the cuadrilatero del oro, um, the golden... Quadrilateral. I don't know. I hate lately. Like, but um, that's actually the area that's producing the vast amount of, op- particularly opium, poppy, and marijuana in Mexico. Guerrero was a secondary a secondary zone. Um, that will shift in the 90s, but whatever. Um, in the 70s, it was that northern triangle or northern square. And this what what, what happened um, in 1977, 1976, 1977, is the Mexican government ordered something called Operation Condor, which Thousands of, of, of soldiers and hundreds of federal police officers are sent into Sinaloa and Zamora and Durango and Chihuahua to eventually go on a rampage. They, 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 the very same thing they do in Guerrero, they do in Sinaloa. I'm um, going after highland peasant farmers who are growing, who are doing the growing of opium, poppies and marijuana. And it's, it's striking to read the reports and the, and the newspaper accounts of what the army is doing in, in Operation Condor. You compare that to what they were doing in Guerrero just, you know, 5 years earlier and it's almost the exact same thing. It's it's counterinsurgency, except the target is different. The target are these these peasant far- highland peasant farmers who are growing marijuana and opium poppies for a for an American market. One of the interesting things about Operation Condor though is that there's intense intra-state squabbling and conflict. There's actual outright conflict between the state police of Sinaloa who in some cases are collaborating and protecting local traffickers. Some of these police will be disappeared, will be tortured and disappeared by the military. So you have this weird, like, so there's multiple layers of, of conflict going on um, between local powers and then uh, state power in the form of the military and federal police who are seen as kind of uh, outsiders who are coming in and committing, you know, horrible numbers of atrocity by this, by 1979, 1980, you have a convergence of human rights organizations that will lead a a really famous hunger strike, I think it was in Mexico City in 1980, uh, by families of the disappeared. And it was people from Guerrero whose loved ones had been disappeared by the Mexican military because they were quote unquote guerrillas and they were aligned themselves with the families of highland peasant farmers in Sinaloa and Sonora whose loved ones had been disappeared, but they had been disappeared because they were accused of being uh, drug farmers. And they come together in Mexico City and they launched this hunger strike. Um, so that's another way to kind of trace the connections, um, and again, under the broader argument that, that the war on drugs for me is always a war against poor people. Um, it's a war on, on poor people, again, in the drug-producing, growing country, and if we take it on the United States side, um, it's, a, it's a war on poor people who are who are accused of consuming, on, on the one hand, um, be, uh, becoming participants in this illegal economy, and on the other hand, also becoming the consumers of these drugs, right? So. Uh, poor communities that are always racialized in, in very specific much ways, much like well. with
0: the development efforts in Thailand, the dual counterinsurgency and interdiction campaigns in Mexico did little to halt the production and consumption of drugs.
3: One of the the, the consequences of Operation Condor is that it completely eradicates. Um, well, one effect is that it the drug traffickers, the big ones, managed to escape Sinaloa and they managed to go into other parts of Mexico places like Guerrero, where they start to use that region to produce opium poppies and marijuana, So it really forces like a nationalization of of drug cultivation throughout Mexico. And it also weeds out like some of the smaller um, players in the business who couldn't pay for government protection. And it ironically uh, forced a centralization or organization of big time um, drug smugglers in Mexico, which leads to the creation of something that we now refer to as the Guadalajara cartel. Um, These these guys who, these smugglers who decide to create um, what is really not a cartel, but it's more of a federation, a loose alliance of of big time drug smugglers who decide to come together and work together. They're doing that in response to Operation Condor and this effort from the Mexican government to to completely eradicate um, uh, drug cultivation in northern Mexico.
0: One of the takeaways from this is something we already know the war on drugs as waged according to the American model of prohibition and policing has failed. But what else can we learn from this history of drug control in Mexico?
3: It, it allows, it's a it's a window or a vantage point into broader questions of, of, of power, both domestically in the U.S. and internationally with regard to the U.S. empire. Like, it allows us a way to kind of trace how and why U.S. imperial power works. It says something about how powerful this discourse is, right? Because
0: the,
3: the war on drugs is, is, is similar to, to the war on terror. or to It's like the war itself produces the very conditions that it presumes to be fighting to eradicate, right? So if that's the case, and it's not really a war on drugs, right? If the war on drugs is producing more drugs and more drug users, then this really isn't a war on drugs. It's a war on something else. Um, and that reasoning, you could substitute, you could change drugs, and you can put the war on terror, right? The war, the war to eradicate terrorism, has only generated more terrorism. Why is that? If that's the case, and this is not really a war on terror, this is a war against something else, um, and I think this is where it gets us to questions of like U.S. empire, into that earlier point I made, in terms of. Why why does the U.S. enjoy this international power to judge other countries' ability or inability or willingness or unwillingness to wage war against drugs and drug-producing farmers? Like, what gave the U.S. that right, right? And and, and to answer that question, I think we go back to Suzanne Reese's book, and, you know, what she, she refers to as, as U.S. systems of, of imperial control, constituting something that she refers to as the alchemy of empire. Like, the U.S. does it because it's an empire, and, and this is I think an important starting point for analysis, I think, when we think about the more recent um, history of
0: the war on drugs and, and, and drug production, and in, in not just in Latin America, but I think throughout the world. And to add my own two cents to the wealth of insight that Dr. Avina has already provided, we cannot ignore the particular local and regional histories that shape struggles over drugs in countries like Mexico or Thailand. Myriad actors pursued their own agendas and collaborated with the United States in a way that created a multidirectional, dynamic, truly global war on drugs. Cool. Next time on Prologged, we take stock of what we've learned, where we are, and where we might be headed in the global war on drugs. This season of Prologue was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication created by the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Special thanks to the Stanton Foundation for their ongoing support. Our editors are David Stagerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breithogel. Researched, written, and hosted by Brianna Mendoza. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotmer, and our production specialist is Brandon McLean at Orange Studio. Our theme song is Hotshot by Scott Holmes. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find our show. As any good historian should, we encourage our listeners to visit the episode descriptions for citations to background reading and sources that informed the creation of this podcast. Season one of prologue on the Myth of the Women's Block has all episodes streaming now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. For additional podcasts, articles, and videos, all of which approach events happening in our world today from a historical perspective, follow us on social media at OriginsOSU. Thanks for listening.